Uh, it's good to see uh, Kath and Brian there. Haven't seen you for a while. Whether that's because I haven't been here, feels like Linda and I, since we got back from long service leave, that we've been um, um, working with ESA to make up for the time we had off. Like we've been going double time. Uh, so it's good to see you. Good to see Gary and Ellen too. It's a real blessing. So thanks for mentioning Billy Graham there before um, I speak, uh, Chris. <laughs> when I think of Billy Graham, I think of him calling people to repent. You know, repent! But he, he does that. And, um, but he always gave good grounds of why. Why we need to repent. And it, so our sins, are, he exposes that we are sinners very well and then calls people to turn from their sin to Christ. And um, it, it's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Like the the prodigal son, when he um, goes, takes a, his inheritance and squanders it, and in, while in the in the the pig pen, he repents. He turns there and he uh, comes back, and then the father welcomes him and embraces him with loving arms. So no matter how vile we've been and are, the father uh, just embraces. Yeah. Uh, Acts 12 might seem a little bit random. Uh, usually, when I get opportunities to speak for ESA here and there, and I usually probably choose, unless they give me a topic or something to speak on. But uh, I spoke at the Moral Community Church recently, and they were up to chapter 12 in their preaching. And I said I could do that if I wanted to. And I chose to just for a bit of a challenge for myself. So, I can remember a couple of times when I have been persecuted or threatened directly because of my faith. So, first time was when I was uh, back in, living in Sale, doing a year eight. Uh, and that was a, it was a lunchtime program in a high school and Lee Thorne was running that. And I went along. And uh, I was sitting on a chair and my foot was sticking out of the aisle and this young fella, he was in year eight, and he comes along and he just jumps up and thumps down on me foot. And it hurt. And um, and I just let him go. He had a you know, cheeky smirk on his face. He knew, he knew what he was doing. And um, another time, uh, Greg and I were out at the prison. Uh, as we do, we were out there to uh, share the love of Jesus with people. And we went into this room and this guy says... Before we'd said anything, really. Oh, no, I said, I might have said something, introduced ourselves, and he said, if you don't get out of here, I'm going to burn this cigarette out on you. And so we complied and left. <laughs> um, so we've just read, thank you, Janelle, for reading that so well. Big big reading. Um, it's no comparison to what these Christians and these people have suffered for the gospel. And it's no comparison to what uh, people across the world today are suffering for Jesus. So the book of Acts is about the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. It's about proclaiming that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. It recounts the establishment and expansion of the church, first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, to right here, right now, in Mafra. It takes us on a roller coaster road of adventure. It tells the story of the early church, 
The church has grown and flourished, but it has also suffered much. The believers have seen miracles, but they've also been dragged out of their homes and persecuted. Stephen has been martyred. There is conflict because the Jewish, the Jewish leaders believe to be in right relationship with God, they need to obey the law. But the apostles are saying a right relationship is based on faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The law has been fulfilled by Jesus and Jesus is now the author and perfecter of theirs and our faith. So chapter 12 starts with about that time. What time? Well, I'll just, it just goes back to Acts eleven twenty-seven to 30. I'll just read that for you. Um, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So it was about that time that these events that we've just read happened. Uh, So Paul and Barnabas would have been in Jerusalem at this time when this was going down, when, when James was beheaded. So we've got them arriving in Jerusalem. And if you go down right to the last verse, Acts 25 there, It says that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So so they just, all these events has happened, persecution, suffering, but they're just getting on with business. That stuff happens, but they're getting on with what they know they've got to do about proclaiming Christ. They didn't lose step, even though when stuff happens, they didn't lose step. I'm going to just pray there. Uh, Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living. Thank you that it was read and that we can hear it with our own ears. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the warm embrace that we get from you each time we turn in with a repentant heart. Help us to see you, not me, as we just spend this time together in Jesus name Amen Hmm. Um, so the church is continuing to be under fire and as we read verses 1 to 6 we see the hands of Herod so you get a little bit of a demonstration this is my little demonstration there angry hands of Herod. Herod Agrippa is um, the king who's spoken of in chapter 12. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the guy who ordered the killing of the babies, children under two at Bethlehem, and when the true king of Israel was born, Jesus. And then there's uh, Herod Antipas, who was um, Agrippa's uncle, and he was the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded, and um, he also, when Jesus was on trial, Jesus was before Antipas at that time. So I think there's only one other Herod and that's when their sort of um, reign ended. 
So the Herodian kings were Edomites, not Jews, and so they, they were desperate to hold onto power and win the approval of the masses. King Agrippa is following the, the, type, the tyrannical rule of his predecessors. There has been continued friction with the church and Jews, so much so that Herod lays violent hands on some who belong to the church and killing James with a sword. And seeing that it was a good move politically, because it pleased the Jews, he arrests Peter. But it's just before the Passover, so he has to wait till the celebrations before he can act. Peter must have had a reputation that even Herod knew well about. Why else would he have chained Peter between two soldiers and appointed four squads of guards? You may remember in Acts chapter 5 where Peter and the disciples had experienced the hand of God supernaturally helping them escape from prison. Or maybe Herod was concerned that the Christians would try and rescue him. Either way, he was taking no chances. So Peter is in prison and at this time we see the hands of prayer. So verse 5 tells us that earnest prayer was being made for Peter. The theologian uh, Karl Barth, he says this, he says, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder that's in the world. The disciples have just lost one of the apostles. James was also one of their in a circle close to Jesus and he was part of the flourishing growth of the church in Jerusalem. The scripture doesn't say much about James' death here, just that he was killed by the sword. But his death was significant, as is every child of God. You know, the, you remember that Jesus talked about the sparrows? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from our father's knowledge and we are worth more than many sparrows. It was a fil- also a filament of Jesus' words in um, Mark chapter 10, verse 39, and the context was when James and John came to, um, came to Jesus and wanted to sit one on his left and his right in his kingdom, in his glory. But part of that conversation, Jesus says this, uh, he says, you will drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptised, you will be baptised. So... They're not going to those places. They're not going to get those places that they ask for, because that was the two the two thieves that actually got that place, wasn't it? On either side on the cross, that was a terrible was a terrible thing to ask to be placed there anyway. But it was a cup of suffering that James knew well, and baptism was baptism into death, and so which Jesus had prophesied here. Still, the church in Jerusalem have just taken a massive blow. As well as James and Peter, they would have all felt under threat. So they were praying together earnestly for Peter. Let's imagine for a moment, uh, Daniel Andrews, our Victorian Premier, has passed a policy through the Victorian Parliament that you aren't allowed to meet publicly as Christians. And let's say, I'm going to pick on David here because... uh, if you don't know, recently David um, went down to the March for Babies in Melbourne and they go to Parliament House, is that right? 
David? Yeah. So David has thought, uh, okay, we need to do something about this. So he's got us all together and we've all gone down on the train together and we've gone to Parliament House and we're having a prayer meeting right outside Parliament House. So David gets arrested and it isn't pretty and we're scattered. How long do you think it would be before we came together as a group and petitioned God on behalf of Dave? Hopefully not very long. So being honest Christian people, how earnest would you say our prayers are, or your prayers are, my prayers are, I put myself in there, how earnest are our prayers and how earnestly do we pray when we get together? I think sometimes we don't have too much at stake in our comfortable Western culture. We don't tend to feel the urgency. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll wrestle with our arrow prayers. I'll pray for that. Um, Instead of really um, earnestly pleading to the Father. Uh, Like, I want to be challenged by this. I see this in me. I I see a need to be more earnest in prayer. God is true. Jesus gave everything. The cost has been immeasurable. Hell is real. Some of our friends and family will go there, eternally separated from God. People in our communities, our families, they need us. They need us to stand in this place prayerfully, earnestly pleading with our God for them. And also that he would move in us and that God may open doors of opportunities to speak and to show the love and forgiveness of God that has been shown to us in Jesus. Um, So this isn't simple and we can seem overwhelmed about how to go about it. So I'm talking here about prayer, but I'm also talking about action. Maybe a slight divergence here, you can decide. I I think we need help. We need to get together and brainstorm creative ways to express our faith. Even having the discussions can be empowering. So last week David expressed with sadness the the students up at the high school uh, blaspheming Jesus' name. And then we talked about it a little bit here openly and then I spoke to David on Wednesday and he had another opportunity and to approach it differently um, as another kid blasphemed. Uh, also, I'm just thinking about ideas um, at a leadership training event. So ESA, I run Christian camps and we have leaders get together and we do training. So I just did a training session on uh, facilitating a small group. After that, uh, a girl, she must have been about 17 or 18 and she went to a Catholic school, but she ran a Bible in the Catholic school at lunchtime, Bible study. And uh, she said to me, how do I, how can I invite people uh, to come to the Bible study? And... I thought, oh, that's a good question. She, she was just rest, it was a wrestle for her. She wanted people to come. She knows she's got something to offer. She knows Jesus and she wants others to know him. And so I said, why don't you um, ask a question? So take something that you do in your Bible study and when you invite someone, present, present something of it so they can sort of uh, understand what, you, what you're inviting them to. So I said, maybe just ask a question. 
have you ever had a relationship that has broken down? Or have you ever had something uh, happen to you, like a, a spiritual experience that you, you couldn't explain? I said, well, we talk about these things in our Bible study. Um, and she, she was happy with that. Just, it gave us something to think about to, to work on. Uh, we also, on our camps, we have a thing called Grow Group. I've mentioned it before here, uh, where kids, it's a voluntary space, it's a voluntary safe space where they can come and ask any question about anything. Generally, they're, uh, as they, they're engaging in camp, they start to think differently. They start, start to put God in place and how, they, how things work, work out their worldview and stuff. And so they come along and we, uh, they'll ask their question, but we don't answer just... We answer it as a discussion. So we'll... I, don't, I say to them, I'll have a go at answer it, but I haven't got all the answers, but I, then I, it gives me room to seek answers myself. But it's just a safe place and it's open and they can come. So they also have... It was packed this year. We had to have another one. We had to have two grow groups and they just had so many questions. And my point is there is that people really want to know what we have on offer, what Jesus offers them, how he makes sense of life. And... They, they, they want to know they're searching, but there is no safe place where you can actually ask any question and get a reasonable, non-reactive, you know, no, you know, like it. It is really hard to create a safe space in your world. You will know that. You get an environment. I've been in different places where, um, actually on that topic of a blasphemy, I was on, working on a building site and these three guys come and they, I pulled them up on on, the, on a building site, you know, the blokes, they're tough on that. And um, I said, well, what do you you blokes, um, you know, use Jesus' name in the way you do? And he says, which blokes? I said, you three standing just there. And, uh, well, I don't know, what do you think? And um, I said, that well, there's two kingdoms. There's only, the Bible says that there's only two kingdoms and you either belong in one or the other. And Jesus is the door. If you're in his kingdom, you're not going to talk like that. But if you're not, let them work that out. So, and I remember at the time, the Holy Spirit created that environment, that that space. Um, Like, I just just say those things just to stimulate your thinking. Let's think more about, we know God's word, we know he's true, you're here at church, so you've experienced something good about God. Uh, how do then to you, you know, I think we've got to be deliberately creative, working on ways to engage our community. So our church has just been through a, a hard time, possibly the hardest so far as a church, and all of us were affected deeply, and it has not been for no reason. No doubt we will see that more clearly as time goes by. But you know what? The most effective mission for us as a church is that we love one another deeply from the heart. Jesus speaks to us in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. For us, loving one another is for others to see so that they may be drawn to him. Not only is it good for us, 
but it's the best evangelistic outreach to our community that we have. In 1 John 4, 11 and 13, John says, Beloved. Like, I don't know what sort of communities... We, we, we may miss it sometimes, but John says, Beloved of God, the children of God, the family of God. We are beloved of the Father. Like, that's special. That is That is wonderful. He says, um, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So this is a spirit of power that Acts 1.8 speaks of. Remember the projection from the gospel of the gospel from Jerusalem? To the ends of the earth it's that power to be his witnesses the power to love if you're wondering what God's will is for you wonder no more because whatever it is specifically it is definitely this generally now go and make disciples here in Mafra and the surrounding areas because this is where God has placed you as I grow and hopefully mature in the faith, I, um, I see our actions need to be accompanied by prayer. It's more about him than us. Well, actually, it's not about us. It's about him. You see, like in the rescue of Peter, God moves through the prayers of his people. So please, please, let's pray. <laughs> let's come together and pray. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. So he's doing stuff. He's, uh, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So if we, as we look at uh, verses 14 and 15, Many early brothers and sisters came together. They've been praying earnestly, petitioning God to act. But when he does, they're surprised. They have doubts. And when Peter knocks on the door, they say that Rhoda, the servant girl, is out of her mind. And even when they say Peter for themselves, it literally means that they're beside themselves with wonder. Here we see the grace of God, don't we? He isn't limited to our fears and doubts. Their doubt wasn't a deal breaker for God. God obviously doesn't act in miraculous ways like this all the time, but he does act like this. While James was killed, Peter was miraculously freed. We're told that when we pray according to his will, he hears us. So in 1 John five fourteen, that's where it says that, um, he will move mountains if it is his will. Remember, remember the mustard seed? itty bitty thing like this it's not about the size of our faith it's about who we have faith in I encourage you to meditate on this verse for a few days in 1 John 5 14 it's interesting when you read over a verse and then you read over it again and you read over it again and you read over it again it's worth it's worth doing to that verse in relation to prayer we see here that the church were praying according to his will. 
because we see uh, verses 11, 7 to 11, the hands of rescue. My throat needs a bit of rescue. Let's consider Peter's peril for a moment. He's been in prison for at least a couple of days. James has been killed with a sword. There's every reason to believe that Peter was preparing himself for his own death. He would have known what was coming in the morning. Uh, Once the festivities were over, he was going to be brought out for trial. Death was coming and it was going to be public. But we have this surprising picture in verse 7 of Peter. He does not appear worried or anxious. He's fast asleep. A deep sleep, so much so when the hands of rescue come, the angel has to kick him in the side to wake him up. Look at at the comparison here of Peter uh, on another perilous occasion when he was on on the sea with the other disciples and Jesus in the boat. They were crossing the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up and they were fishermen and they knew what it was to be in a storm and they knew that death was coming in in that regard, water was coming into the boat and they they were fearing for their lives. And then as Jesus calms the sea with a command, that cranks it up even more and they're terrified. Who is this that even the waves and storm obey him? Again, Peter's world is out of control here. Certain death is very close. It's the same Peter, but it's a different response. So why so? Well, Peter now lives on this side of the cross and the resurrection. Who is this man that even the waves and storm obey? Well, that question now has been answered. Jesus is the Messiah and his spirit dwells in Peter giving him the same trust and same hope in the face of death. And we also have this same spirit, which will enable us enable us in that day to have the same hope and trust and strength. You see, Jesus is here. And as we go through trials and even death, he's there too. It's through many trials that we will enter the kingdom, Paul says. Luke says. No, Paul says in the book of Acts, <laughs> chapter 14, verse 22, the cross of Jesus epitomises this idea of suffering and hope. This doesn't disregard the reality of the turmoil and pain in our lives, but in the midst of them, he is there. Maybe we see him less sometimes because we can focus on the turmoil more than on his ever fatherly care. The reality is that he is nearer. As Psalm 46, 1 says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. So let's encourage each other to look for him, especially when it's painful, but no less in times of blessing. And Paul expresses it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not 
that would was make us to rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. So Peter says here in verse 11, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter gives the glory to God. He knows that it is God and God alone who has rescued him. Which brings us to verse 20 to 24. The hands of justice. I'm going to get that. That's a bit better. The gavel. In verse 3 of chapter 12, we see that Herod is being motivated by the approval of the Jews. Now, as we come to the end of the chapter, Luke describes Herod's end and we see the ultimate consequences of his behaviour. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory, God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Here's another account of the same thing by uh, the Jewish historian Josephus. So I just read this because sometimes we can look at the Bible in the sense that it's a, a, uh, a spiritual book, but the Bible actually comes out of history and so other people have written about it. So he's a non-Christian alive at this time and he's written about um, this occasion and he says this. Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city Caesarea. There he exhibited shows in honour of the emperor. On the second day of the festival, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a truly wonderful contexture and came into the theatre early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment was illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it. It shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. At that moment, his flatterers cried out that he was a god, and they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man... Yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. So King Herod had a huge ego. He received the glory from people. He didn't give the glory to God and suffered the consequences of his pride. And that's pretty straightforward. Um... In the Bible, it makes much of this. Whether we are a king or a pauper, we're responsible for our actions and words. Isaiah says in verse 2, 11 and 12, the haughty looks of man, that's kind of looking down on others and stuff, shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And again in Proverbs sixteen eighteen, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So we, we, we need to remember that all the glory is the Lord's and offer him our praises and thanks. Romans eleven thirty six says, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. 
Herod opposes the purposes of God. But in verse 24 we see the verdict. Herod Herod dies, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Nations and kings, governments, world leaders, lobby groups and people will never overcome the purposes of God. Herod tried and failed. Throughout history, many have tried to stamp out Christianity, the Bible, God and Jesus. And this has led to some atrocious acts. Many have done terrible things, but they too are gone, dead, while the word of God remains. God will deal with those who oppose him. He who is just will bring about justice in his own time. We are to continue to, like the early disciples, pray, preach, love and live this life that we have with Jesus as our Lord and and our true King, who is a far better King than Herod. So let's look at the hands of Jesus. King Herod was a proud, power-hungry King. He sought and accepted the adoration he did not deserve. King Jesus is a humble servant king. He deserves all the glory and adoration, yet he willingly emptied himself from becoming a servant, dying in our place. Philippians chapter 2. King Herod is described as having violent hands. He killed James and the Roman soldiers guarding Peter. Isaiah 53 describes King Jesus as having done no violence, and he is the prince of peace. King Herod was an angry king, His was a kingdom of violence and fear. King Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of love. The Bible talks about the anger and wrath of God, his just judgment upon sinners, but in Jesus the Messiah, all the anger of God has been placed for those who trust in Jesus. God is no longer angry. We are secure in his love. King Herod enslaved his people. He placed Peter in chains. King Jesus has redeemed us from the prison of sin and death. He delivers us and makes us free. King Herod tried to secure a worldly kingdom. Ultimately, his kingdom failed. When the day came, King Herod died and he could do nothing to prevent it. King Jesus is alive. Death could not hold him and his reign is eternal. King Jesus won't be thwarted. His word will continue to flourish. God wins, always, without exception. You see, kingdoms come and go. They rise up in opposition to God's truths. And people have been doing this from the beginning. Yet here we are today, listening to the word of God, read by Janelle. And isn't that good? So my persecution story that I started with, that guy, that young fella, that year eight kid, he he frequented, a, uh, he started to work in a shop in sale that I used to frequent. And I prayed for that young fella when, it, when he did what he did. I, I, I loved him. And um, otherwise I wouldn't have prayed for him. And I got opportunity to speak with him and he was remorseful of the way that he had acted in that, in that time. And, um, and I just prayed for him. Pray for him that he may, um, he saw something of Jesus. And I just pray the Lord would touch his heart and bring him to that knowledge. And then the guy who threatened me with a cigarette 
We, you know, you guys make biscuits, home baked bickies, and we deliver them each week, each year, and um, we take it in turns of handing the biscuits out. But it happened to be my turn when this guy came along, and I shook his hand, gave him some biscuits, looked him in the eye, and said, "God bless you." And we also prayed for that guy and cared for him. People go through lots of um, um, rubbish. I was riding my push bike the other day and um, I was coming up behind this lady who was walking along and I knew her and so I didn't want to scare her riding up behind her so I came around this way and just said hello and she said, F off. (laughs) 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 And... um, and I know her, so I, I didn't let that stop me. So I started, I just started talking to her. And she's struggling. And she's uh, doing it, doing things pretty hard. And as we went along, right, I was just riding beside her as she walked and she was chatting. And I said, can I pray for you? And she, she, she welcomed that and I prayed for her. I like it when the angry words aren't the last words. But kindness wins, love wins. What does it say? Love never fails. I'll finish with this verse, almost. In 1 Peter 24 and 25, I think it sort of sums up pretty much this chapter. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So in the words of um, Colin Buchanan, will you come to Jesus, crown him as your king, mighty God and saviour, Lord of everything. In love he came to bear our shame and break the power of sin. Will you come to Jesus and crown him as your king? The cross is for Christians. Uh, Non-Christians don't care about the cross. The cross is for us. And we need to visit there regularly. So will you come to Jesus? Continually crown him as your king. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you for you. We thank you that you care. When others don't necessarily care and just we are so limited in our ability to care. But you've given us your spirit and that makes a difference. To really love. Thank you Father that We are your beloved and that you do love us and that you do care about the little details in our lives. But Lord, you care for the mission that you've called us to. Your word will never fail. And Lord God, help us to hold fast to it and proclaim it to this generation where we live in this town and around for your glory and namesake. Amen.